Hey everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And today we will be doing our movie trade episode on The Prestige and The Age of Innocence. We each gave each other a movie to watch, and I hope you had a lot of fun with mine, (laughs) as much as could be had, I guess. (laughs) I've kept my opinions from you, and I'm really curious if it's, like, stressed you out at all. (laughs) It's really stressed me out. I... (laughs) I may be a little despondent. We'll see. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, too, because I really liked rewatching The Prestige, which I do every time because I feel like I just am mm-hmm. so shaken by the ending every oh time God. I watch. Yeah, I ended up watching that two times. <laughs> oh, my God. I watched it and then I had to go back and really try to figure everything out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely leaves you guessing. And I did like Age of Innocence. No way. <laughs> I, it's like one of the only period films that I liked. I didn't love it because it was... Well, okay, we'll, we'll get into it later. But uh, I will take like. First I, reviews, I will take yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started talking about Tenet. We have an update. Here we go. We had another update. So Tenet will be released at the end of August along with their unconventional day-and-date release format. And it'll actually be released in 50 territories the week prior to the U.S. receiving it on September 3rd, which then you start questioning, okay, who's getting it in the U.S.? Because what theaters are open, I had no idea theaters were open in the U.S. And then I just read an article that said 45 states have theaters. And I was like, wait, 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 excuse me? They're yeah. act- I I can't believe that. I cannot believe that either. I read an article too. It might be the same one, the IndieWire article. And the headline is more than 80% of the U.S. can see Tenet in theaters on September 3rd. <laughs> now, of course, that can change. But when I saw that, I just thought, no way. How are theaters open? And right. then I started just going mad thinking about that why are they open and then I have a question for you (laughs) how far would you be willing to travel to see Tenet (laughs) I was just thinking it's like I need to look up what states have theaters I'm hoping they all require masks I won't be buying any food which is maybe a bad mindset to have but it's everything is so questionable I don't know how far I'd be willing to go if I could take a train there and then maybe like an Uber somewhere. That's It's just so extreme. <laughs> it is so extreme. I actually texted some of my friends that live in Vermont still because Vermont is doing really well and told them that I might be there to see Tenet. We were just like, <laughs> what is Tenet? Oh my God, wait. <laughs> Every single friend I mentioned Tenet to this week, they were like, what is Tenet? I was like, excuse me? Where have you Who been are these living? people we know? <laughs> I said, it's Christopher Nolan's next film. How have you not seen this in the past three months? They're like, who? I said, oh my God, I can't do this right now. We have been giving this movie a lot of free press. You know, I see, time runs out. We talk about every week on our podcast. <laughs> One, why are you not listening to us? Two, how? Oh my gosh. Ugh, this is Rob the biggest Pattinson. movie. The second Everybody, the stills came everything. out. Ugh. Exactly. So who knows if I will 
I doubt I'll make it to an indoor theater. I feel like I'm still just too spooked, but I'm hoping that it will go to drive-ins. Exactly. I'm, I will look up drive-ins and try to see the nearest one. Yeah. Because that's, that's a much higher possibility. I will get a rental car and come scoop you up. <laughs> we can go see it. But I feel like even that movie experience is so different, especially for sound. You're relying on your car stereo for a Dolby theater experience. <laughs> like, <laughs> it makes me ill to think about oh. just turning my radio on and hearing Rob Pattinson's voice is too much. <laughs> it's not what I need. I, I still can't wait. I'm so excited. And now that I'm back on team Christopher Nolan after seeing the prestige, <laughs> I'm even more excited. I'm, I'm back. I'm glad I've converted you back. <laughs> we also had some more interesting news in the world of theaters. And there was a partnership, big deal, between AMC, the largest theater chain, and Universal, where they actually agreed to shrink the time between a movie's opening in theaters to when you can watch it at home. The window before was 75 days, and now it is just 17 days. Crazy. Huge. You're talking two plus months to two plus weeks. Right. That is a huge difference, huge box office changes. I mean, to see this happen from their earlier drama about them not showing Universal movies because of their home release is perplexing. Right. When I first saw this headline, I expected it to be about that because I remembered that earlier drama from Mm -hmm. near the beginnings of COVID. And now this just seems like a bad idea for movie theaters and for the largest theater chain to have a deal like this going well we know that other theater chains aren't happy about it regal which is the second largest one a spokesperson for them shared that they're going to only show movies that respect their release window so i guess they're not going to be showing in the universal films <laughs> amc is truly having an identity crisis because they're about to go bankrupt right Mm-hmm. yep And they're just pulling all the stops, trying to stay afloat and Mm -hmm. maybe make some money back on a home release. I don't know how that works, but if every production company went along with this, that would just entirely change and and alter the theater experience. So much is up in the air when we think about studios and theatrical experience and when we'll be in theaters again and what that will be like and... How much of that will rely on just IP? We haven't even talked about the New Mutants, probably because we don't really care about it. But (laughs) (laughs) there could be a world when we're just seeing movies like that in theaters. Which is not... What we want. uh, Yeah. Everyone knows how we feel about (laughs) this. Like, I really wanted a theater to watch The Age of Innocence. Oh. And... Just like beautiful movies mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So there there has just been so much news about things changing. And I mean, theaters are opening apparently, but we haven't seen any of those things play out yet. And so it seems it feels very hectic, which is how all of this has felt. But mm-hmm. I want some normalcy in one 
faction of my life. <laughs> right. I want to just go to Canada and live there and see Tenant <laughs> and have everything be fine. Yes. Live at TIFF. And part of Nolan's films is that culture around an idea of protecting fans from spoilers because there is so often a big reveal in his mm-hmm. films. So with Tenant, I feel like no one even knows what this movie is about. So the fact that all of these other countries and territories are going to be seeing it early, how can we protect <laughs> ourselves from all of this information about it? There's that part of it where I'm going to have to remove Tenant from anything that comes up on any social media. Mm-hmm. But the other part is piracy. Mm-hmm. And if other countries get it, how that affects our viewing experience. And I mean, I'm sure Nolan and his company is going to be on that mm-hmm. so hard, like the music industry. But still, then I'm, I'm going to pass somebody on the street and hear what happens and yeah. just give up. <laughs> right. Or like the guy that after the Game of Thrones finale was riding his bike down my street screaming the ending. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> Given my God. that a lot of people don't know what Tenet is, I apparently I feel like we'll be safe. But <laughs> we're in our bubbles. <laughs> in our little tenant free bubbles. Big city bubbles. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I had the pleasure of watching The Aww. Age of Innocence. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear it. (laughs) Directed by Martin Scorsese in 1993. So this was definitely an offshoot for him, which I think is exciting. And it's near the middle of his career. His sequence around this time, he was making movies every one or two years, which is also insane. But he made Goodfellas in 1990, follow up in September for an anniversary pod on that. But then. And then in 1991, he made Cape Fear, Age of Innocence two years later, two years later made Casino, and then two after that made Kundun, which I'm also interested to see. Also, one of my criminally underrated favorites. We can talk about that (laughs) another time. Okay. But The Age of Innocence is a tale of 19th century New York high society in which a young lawyer played by Daniel Day-Lewis, falls in love with a woman separated from her husband while he is engaged to the woman's cousin. So Daniel Day marries Winona Ryder. She kind of represents everything pure about New York society. She wears a lot of whites and creams. She's younger. That's the idea that Edith Wharton and Marty want you to have for that character. They mention at one point in the movie how people in the society would wear their wedding dresses for the year following is that right Mm -hmm. so you see her in her white gown at the theater which is interesting and then the one that he like really falls in love with is countess olenska who is married to this polish guy who takes half her money Mm -hmm. right yeah. So at the Oscars, it won one Oscar for costume design, had five nominations. This I find is really interesting because it wins a different award at every award ceremony. So then at the Golden Globes, it won Best Supporting Actress for Winona Ryder, had four nominations. And then at the BAFTAs, won Best Supporting Actress for Miriam Margulies and had four nominations. I loved her the most, for sure. Yes. She's she's so great. Not to cut you off and start talking about this because no. I want you to talk about it. I want to hear what you liked about it. But <laughs> a fascinating interview. If you ever want to go on YouTube and watch Miriam Margulies on Graham Norton, 
she mm-hmm. is like half joking, half serious, talking about she hates Winona Ryder because she didn't get an Oscar nomination. She thought that Winona was category fraud and should have been nominated for Best Actress to free up a spot for her for Best Supporting Actress. Oh, jeez. Which is incredible stuff. Yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, right. I mean, they're all great. Even Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing. So mm-hmm. everyone does a good job. I There are so many quotes from this movie, which I'll try to sprinkle in here, that it starts off really strong at this theater performance and when they leave they're headed to may's family's ball and the narrator who is this other character that i don't fully understand but this like omniscient third person Mm -hmm. narrator who tells you about the story along the way the narrator says as as they're leaving the ball it was widely known in new york but never acknowledged that americans want to get away from amusement even more quickly than they want to get to it which was a stinger for an intro scene. I love that. I think the narrator is such an interesting function because all of the narration, it's voiced by Joanne Woodward and it's actual text from the Edith Wharton novel, which is really neat, I think, of how they incorporate this omniscient narrator into Mm -hmm. this movie from the 90s, which on its surface, is similar to a lot of costume dramas, I think, from the 90s, but the way that Scorsese plays with the source material and the way that he chooses to put certain lines and phrases in word for word, I really love how inventive he is in doing that. Before we get too far into picking apart the movie, because there's so much to talk about, and before I go into the prestige, just generally, what did you like about it? Because I'm so curious and just excited, honestly, that... (laughs) You liked a movie that I recommended. (laughs) I think we'll get to this point a little in comparing the two, but I liked that it was an unconventional period piece. Mm -hmm. And I think I also liked it because it was Scorsese. He's just good at what he does. And he's engaging in everything. Even when I saw The Irishman, and yes, we differ on this too, Mm -hmm. but I still was engaged enough the whole time. I liked the characters. I love the ending. Yes. It's heartbreaking. So so heartbreaking, but a perfect ending for that film. I also think, while I liked it, I think it is kind of an amateur Scorsese. (gasps) With some of the techniques he uses, I feel like his recent cinema is way more refined and way more polished. Fascinating. Okay. The one technique he uses is that he would show three frames and then dissolve in between them and he does this a few times and i think using the iris lens on Mm -hmm. certain things is a little old-fashioned um well i thought it was used well in certain cases like the first time we see ellen in the theater this bright light shines on her face Mm -hmm. and so immediately i knew he was something was happening with her you gasped I did. So you don't agree? I don't. I think that this is one of Scorsese's most sophisticated and nuanced films that he has. So you said something earlier that I really was hoping you would say. I wanted to touch on it because I think if you watch it more often, it comes just more easily to you. But on first rewatch, I had the exact same reaction, which is this is a huge pivot for Scorsese. It is not like his other ones at all. And I think when you rewatch it, it's everything like his his other movies. Scorsese himself said that 
The Age of Innocence is the most violent film he's ever made. And mm-hmm. I think when we think about that coming from the director of The Departed and Goodfellas and Taxi Driver with insane amounts of physical violence to them, the restraint that he shows in his direction in his camera work. What I really love too is how he focuses, and we'll talk about this again, I want to, when we talk about the prestige. So when you're watching it, what I really love is you think it's going to follow Daniel Day-Lewis and then all of a sudden it focuses on a painting. Or you think you're going to be focusing in on the conversation that Michelle Pfeiffer is having with another character, but it's zooming in on the food. And by doing this, he is showing us how important these inanimate objects are and this fascination that he has with the objects and what they mean to the time period and I think it is just a really fascinating thing that he does and he's showing us these yeah artifacts of the past and it's a way to incorporate this nostalgia for something that never was which we'll also talk about too or something that we don't understand but I love I think it's I think it's a masterpiece it's my I think it's my number three Scorsese okay I think All of that ties well into Scorsese capturing this life of people who revolve around and really depend on how they're viewed, what they own, how they live, and pretty much the gossip between Mm -hmm. them. I guess another thing that I found interesting and funny was how DDL's under eye was wet the entire time. Yeah. I've never noticed that before. I don't know why until you said that. I like <laughs> creeped on your letterbox review because letterbox. I wanted to see if you would like it or I not. I figured you would. <laughs> so he didn't review it. I'll go I back was and so, give it I was four. so desperate for hints. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw that you said that and I thought, oh my God, I've never noticed that before. But that is so true. But it's not like he's even crying the whole time. I mean, he is emotional at, you know, at the very end, but... It's interesting how Scorsese uses a lot of art, too. So it not only, like, encloses these families in this house, which are so eloquently designed, and there's so much art, but it's creating this barrier for them, and they have to live inside these literal walls. In Scorsese's camera work, I read something about how the camera is always moving. No matter what, it's never still, because the idea of an always moving camera, you're more of a voyeur mm-hmm. into these lives, which is exactly what the movie is making the viewer into. I love that. I think that's on the Criterion commentary that Scorsese gives, okay. which is really interesting. So if you do, it just left the Criterion channel, which is so sad. But if you have the Criterion DVD or if you can get it from the library or some of the videos I think are on YouTube too, the additional commentary from Scorsese and Daniel Day-Lewis is fascinating about the making of the film and the choices that they made. Another interesting Oscar fact. So this is one of the few performances that Daniel Day-Lewis was not nominated for an Oscar for. And as a a serious super fan of Daniel Day-Lewis, I need to um, explain why. (laughs) So Daniel Day-Lewis actually was nominated instead for In the Name of the Father. Have you ever seen that? I think I have. Yeah. Yeah. It is, I think, far more of an Oscar typical performance they would go for. So he couldn't have been nominated two times in the same category. But even more interesting than that is that that year, Tom Hanks won Best Actor for Philadelphia. And Daniel Day-Lewis actually Mm -hmm. turned down that part. Oh, interesting. Which is so interesting. And Tom Hanks ended up talking to Jonathan Demme and convincing him that he should get the part. 
after Daniel Day-Lewis dropped out, or turned it down, rather. I'm not sure DDL had a big enough performance to have been nominated mm-hmm. in the first place. So I think that's okay. But I didn't know he was nominated for something else. Yeah. Because anytime I see that he wasn't nominated for a movie, I just wonder why, and I have to look <laughs> up what what the situation was. <laughs> and in that case, he was nominated just for something different. You mentioned that you really liked the ending of The Age of Innocence. What did you like about it? What worked for you? I think the women in Age of Innocence are so interesting, and Countess Olenska specifically, because she only lives by her own will. She eventually makes it back to Europe, but not on her ex-husband's terms, and she's helped by Miriam the aunt. And then in the end, we hear that even though throughout the entire film, May had never mentioned or asked about Archer, even though it was very clear that he was trying to always see Ellen. Mm-hmm. And we find out from their son that he gave up Ellen, essentially, to stay with May. Mm-hmm. And that's the initial gut punch before he decides not to go up and see her a final time, like on the pier mm-hmm. and the glint in the window. It's maddening, but it, in a good way. So this watch, the ending made me really cry. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm tearing up (laughs) thinking about it right now because, so when she turns around on the pier, did that remind you of another Oscar nominated movie that you really love? Or just me? (laughs) So I have tears welling in my eyes. Oh, I can think of it now. (laughs) Right? La La Land. Yeah. Yeah. It's the ending is very similar to La La Land. It's this relationship that has fallen apart that is all a fantasy and the idea that in the age of innocence it's newland archer it's daniel day lewis and in la la land it's mia emma stone they both have this moment of realization that they are nostalgic and that they want not a real relationship with the person but they still have this longing for something that could never be it was a total ideal a fantasy and they would rather remember the fantasy than the real thing or find out what the real thing is and that i think is what's so crushing about both is just wait that la la land for me is a little different because it's she turns around and they share this moment where they realize that their lives are different now and they're happy to be where they are even though they know there's this alternate universe where they're still together but they know that that's life because that was their discussion by the Griffith Observatory after the audition where they say, I have it up on my wall. I like stitched this quote, but it's <laughs> they'll always love each other, but they know that life moves on. Mm-hmm. But I think if we're thinking specifically about the fantasy sequence of what she's imagining when she's in the jazz club at the very end, it's right. not she's not like thinking of the life necessarily like she is thinking of the life that could have been but in there it's complete fantasy none of that stuff is real or could have actually happened she couldn't have had both and she knows that and that's what's what's sad is that it's this right the age of innocence doesn't exist right there was no innocence in that it's may debunks that by telling archer that she knew all along right Right. that he was having this affair beyond the grave yeah in la la land it's all about fantasy and the golden age of hollywood but what was the golden age of hollywood right they're very i like viewing them as a Mm. set i think they'd be a good double feature that it's a good double feature i like that Mm -hmm. um 
But could could Archer have had a life with Olenska if he hadn't gone through with the proposal to May? I mean, it's kind I of don't... a loaded question, but I, in theory, he could have. He just chose to speed up the wedding. I don't know that. I mean, in theory, he could have, but one, Olenska was totally independent, and you know, she acted the way that she wanted to. And mm-hmm. he was totally beholden to these old standards, right? This age of innocence in New York society at the time. And he couldn't have been with her no matter what because he couldn't escape the standards put on him. He did well for himself living that type of life. And I think he was stubborn and clinging to fantasy. And even though it's Daniel Day-Lewis, I don't find him to be that sympathetic. I think because I find the women so much more interesting. This is a common thread across films that we watch, I think. But I don't think he ever could have been. I don't think he was he was mature enough. And I think he was too stuck in the trappings of that society. No, I agree with that. And it's interesting because that's I love seeing Olenska have this independence and she didn't care that he loved her essentially. And she, she came back to New York initially because she was sick of European values at the time, which a quote that she said relates the blind obeying of someone else's traditions to Europe. So she wanted to escape from that and come back to New York, but then she realizes that that is New York too. Mm -hmm. And really that's Archer. So even with her comfort and what they could have been, even beyond all this, because they talk about early on their relationship and how it was this failed account and it could have worked. Oh, yeah. Right? It's powerful. It's painful and powerful. Yeah. Silly question. How did the aging of Daniel Day-Lewis in The Age of Innocence compare to The Irishman for you? (laughs) Two Scorsese aging movies. I felt like... Gray-haired DDL really looked like how he does today, <laughs> and I think the the when the bags under Winona's eyes were a bit strong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, she has just aged so well over time. But I think DDL definitely had the upper hand with the the mm-hmm. prosthetics team. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> DDL looks great with gray hair. I hope that he is enjoying quarantine on his Connecticut farm doing well and I feel like this time is made for him <laughs> but he kind of did look similar to like phantom thread ddl yeah I mean he should have learned that he didn't need to go through a hundred million dollar transformation cgi just <laughs> t- to be believable uh yeah um daniel day lewis and michelle pfeiffer also have great chemistry I loved them together same birthday Amazing. Both Tauruses, April twenty oh, seventh. Wow. Of course, you know this, <laughs> right? I know it's it's embarrassing. It's fine, but it's the Age of Innocence is steamy. Like it is not like rated R. It's not like the Wolf of Wall Street, but it's very romantic and steamy. I love it. Wasn't it PG? Yeah, this movie is not for children. Like a child, I feel like would no. fall asleep. <laughs> no, which is maybe why it's okay, but. So if you could give The Age of Innocence one Oscar, what would it be? I feel like I always do this. <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Um, yeah, I would give it... I love the script. I would probably give it to Adapted Screenplay. Mm-hmm. I would do the same. It was nominated for Adapted Screenplay, but it went to Schindler's List, I believe. Okay. Which was Steven Zalian, who ended up writing The Irishman. So a later partner of Scorsese. 
Time for me to talk about the prestige. Yay. All right. Nolan fans who have called me a naysayer, I am here to say that I loved The Prestige. (laughs) And I think this is my favorite Nolan. So The Prestige, of course, was directed by Christopher Nolan in 2006. This movie stars Hugh Jackman, Christian Bale, Scarlett Johansson, Michael Caine, and the IMDb description here, our favorite thing to do. After a tragic accident, two stage magicians engage in a battle to create the ultimate illusion while sacrificing everything they have to outwit each other. It was nominated for two Oscars, Cinematography and Art Direction, both of which very deserving of the nominations. I was surprised to look back and see that they were nominated. I was like, oh, I don't think this was nominated because I feel like a lot of these, it's not a filler, but it just doesn't seem like a quote unquote Oscar movie to me. So I was happily Mm -hmm. surprised, especially cinematography. Yeah, the cinematography is beautiful and it's Christopher Nolan's go-to cinematographer, Wally Pfister, who did it. But it starts out with beautiful shots and I think that what's funny is that this is also a period film set in the 19th century, like The Age of Innocence. But the way that the cinematographers choose to capture the period and the story and the setting is so different and I really enjoyed, I think, watching these two period films back to back and seeing how different they were in that respect but how both were really beautifully shot just very different i feel like i should talk about why i liked this nolan after being hard on the others i think for me this is really hard too when you look at all of his films they're all Mm -hmm. so well received but i feel like dunkirk is his most stylistic i definitely think that one's more beautiful to me than this one but I think the story here is one that you leave with and you keep with you and I think that's really important for a lasting movie too Mm -hmm. this one to me had everything that I want from a Christopher Nolan movie I think in perfect amounts it had the beautiful cinematography it had an interesting structure like Dunkirk we will definitely talk about the structure for sure it had great performances the script was fun it had a really great twist I agree with you I think Dunkirk is more beautiful and that's my favorite movie of his to look at but I really love the story and the performances here when combined with the interesting structure and stylistic choices and the twist made sense well should we do that now Do we want to do it now? Let's get into it. Okay, so spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen The Prestige, we are going to spoil the ending and all of the little twists and turns in the beginning. It's all complicated and woven together. So first question is, when did you realize there were two Christian Bales? So I have a confession that Christian Bale is just so hot to me that I really, when he's Fallon, so when he's the old man, I Uh didn't notice because I was too busy staring at real Christian Bale. Which I think is what everyone is doing the first time, Mm -hmm. regardless of your attraction to it. (laughs) But on rewatch, you know that it's a thing and it's actually Mm -hmm. really noticeable. So that's why I'm curious when or if it was at the very end. The first time I watched, it was the very end. Wow. <laughs> like, the very okay. end. See, that I changes everything. I suspected that something might be up. Right. I just kind of thought, okay, he has to have someone working for him who is a lookalike or something. Like, there has to be some strange thing going on here. But the fact that there's a twin, I just, when he walked <laughs> out, I shrieked. <laughs> I really did not see it coming. I felt like Andy Bernard, like a stupid movie watcher. I was just thinking, how did I miss this? So my first question about that was, was it a twin or did he encounter Tesla 
in some early phase of his life and it was a clone no i so that's really theory can't number entertain one. that <laughs> that goes with theory number one okay where hugh jackman as mr angier is creating a clone of himself every performance and he's killing his original off and that's how he creates this magic in the very end. And then you have the room full of clones that are dead. And that's how we frame Christian Bale to be killed in prison. Okay. So I think it's the twin. I think it, I don't think that it's a clone. Also because I'm starting to prescribe to the bonkers fan theory that Tesla's machine didn't actually work. That's theory number two is that the machine was bogus, which is interesting because we see a double of him earlier in the film who's a drunkard and can't really perform on stage. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Hugh Jackman has two lookalikes in the world in the same city is mind-boggling. That's mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a loose end. So another reason why I think it is a twin or a brother is because of the line from his journal that is, we were two young men at the start of a great career, two young men devoted to an illusion, two young men who never intended to hurt anyone. When I first watched it, I thought, okay, this is about these two characters. It's about Christian Bale and about Hugh Jackman. But then when I watched it again, I thought, no, this is about Christian Bale and his brother. Right. Not a clone. Because this quote to me is like they were always moving through this together. Yeah, right. I think since the last time I saw this movie, which was years ago, I hadn't even entertained the idea that the machine wasn't real. And to me, the question was, okay, so Angier killed his original off. And then the question was, which iteration of clone is the final one standing? Which is an interesting question. I don't even know what to say. It's the second or third. But if the machine is bogus, and then in the very end, he swapped so that he could live as the the count Mm -hmm. who keeps Borden's daughter. There's just so many questions. The theories are really interesting. And this is, I think, my favorite part about Nolan movies really is the post-viewing experience where you just talk to your friends who have seen it whether you watched it with them together or like we're doing now and unpack all of these theories that you had when you were watching because they some of them seem completely ludicrous but also not far-fetched at all it is so fun to just play around with and now I'm just thinking of all these other things that it could have been and I'm gonna have to watch it again Nolan is king of misdirection and playing with real versus imagined. So part of what people have been debating is that not everything from the journals was true and that they were each trying to deceive each other, which is understandable. I feel like Angier was always a step behind Borden. Yes. Who were you rooting for? Angier's or Borden? Or neither I mean, of them? I was, I was rooting for Angier, but I mean, none of them deserve to be on top. Borden was just so... I mean, and that speaks to Christian Bale's abilities, too, that he was so calm the whole time and even in prison had the upper hand, literally. Right, literally. I think that he... So when I was watching it, Christian Bale is so good that you really do, at least I did on first viewing, suspected him to be this underdog character and even though he has the trick that Angier wants to learn he still through his performance I wanted him to have the upper hand at all times so then when he didn't and when he was in jail I got so mad (laughs) 
was like, this is not going the way that I want it to go at all. I also learned when I was doing research about this movie that Sam Mendes was actually the first choice to direct, not Christopher Nolan. What do you think about that? Mm. How do you think that version would have worked? I don't know if it would have worked as well because Chris and Jonathan Nolan both adapted the novel and changed it, at least changed the ending completely. So I'm sure it would have been very different from Sam's version and he leaves audiences captivated in other ways and it's not Mm -hmm. really a mind-bending type of thing Mm -hmm. so I would say I wouldn't have liked it as much yeah I think I still would have been interested but it would have been more of a standard costume drama and not the Christopher Nolan mind-bending magic trick because I think what works so well in this one is that it is a magic trick for you as a viewer too. Mm-hmm. So this character Cutter, who's played by Michael Caine, he has this line at the very beginning when he's talking about all the parts of a magic trick, the pledge, the turn, and then the prestige. But in that he says, the magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. Now you're looking for the secret, but you won't find it because of course you're not really looking. You don't really want to know. You want to be fooled, but you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. And that is so interesting because that's what Nolan does to us as viewers. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be fooled the whole time. I wasn't looking at all these little clues that he was leaving along the way because Part of me was this cynical Nolan viewer that is just like, I don't want to decipher a riddle while I'm watching. That's too much work right now. I don't want to do it. But then after I finished it, I thought I immediately have to watch this again because I want to see what I missed. I think so that's good. what's so fun about whodunits and mysteries and movies like this because they do leave hints along the way. Mm-hmm. And you're not always looking in the right places. Yeah, and I think, too, part of the reason why I struggle with his movies sometimes is because I read a lot of thrillers or detective novels. I like noir, and I'm really hard Mm -hmm. on myself when I miss things. Right, right. But this one was so much fun to miss everything, and I think that added layer of what Cutter says at the beginning about how magic tricks work, I really loved that as a viewer to actually be fooled because... Christopher Nolan told me that I just wanted that all along, which is totally true. (laughs) And what's so Christopher Nolan about that is that he essentially Cutter says the same thing at the very end, but in a totally different meaning where you have to bring it back, meaning one of the Bordens back Mm -hmm. and then wanting to be fooled as in, did we understand the magic trick? Were we fooled into believing it's... And that's, that's what I love so much. That's why I think I'm starting to prescribe the theory that Tesla's machine didn't work. What I really love, too, is how the beginning, you have made me a full convert. This is so funny. <laughs> um, what I really love, too, is how the beginning, once we get to the end, we realize that what we saw in the beginning is the end. Like, that mm-hmm. is... It's the same. And that the clues, so we start with these two shots. We have all of these top hats and we have these two birds. While Cutter, Michael Caine's voiceover is giving us this opening monologue. And by the end, we realize that the hats are supposed to be representative of Angier and the clones. And the two birds are like Borden and the twins, right? Or the clone. And when you know that, when you get to the end, oh, I loved it. And there were, I went back and watch two scenes right before this. It was the very end to figure out if we saw multiple bodies in the 
glass cages, the aquariums, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And we only see one, which could have been a double and not a clone. And then the other part was when he did his first Disappearing Man act and he showed up on the balcony. The camera work is really interesting because Mm -hmm. you don't see his face in a frontal profile up close, up on the balcony. You see Mm -hmm. one zoomed in from below, and then you see a side profile shot up on the balcony, but you never see his full face. So you can't really tell if it's a clone or a double, which he also loves to play with all the time. Yeah. I think the camera work is so interesting. He uses, I think like 90% of it I read is handheld. So when you're using handheld, it's it can be very dynamic and you can get really creative in how you're capturing mm-hmm. little details like that. So I think that only adds to the story and trick that he's trying to play on us throughout which is very different than the trick, if we want to use that language, that Scorsese is playing on us in The Age of Innocence with his camera work of trying to shift our focus away from the characters and onto objects. I think that they both do this by making us focus in on objects to reveal themes or plot points that are important, but they do it in really different ways, which I liked. Also, just thinking about casting for a minute, I loved Scarlett in The Prestige, too. I thought she was good. I think everyone across the board was good. Even Piper Parabo, who R.I.P. in the movie. But, and Rebecca Hall. Oh, yeah, Rebecca Hall. I know, the wives are just... (laughs) Was not doing well for women. That was tough. So a thing I learned, too, about Piper, about Hugh Jackman's character's wife that dies in the film, when I was first watching it, I thought, oh my God, try to resuscitate her. Try to bring her back to life. Oh my God, I said the same thing. But CPR wasn't invented yet, so they wouldn't have known. It was like the 1950s. Christopher Nolan doing his research. He just like watched her die. He didn't even like try to like punch her chest or anything. Like, (laughs) uh. No, I was just like, help her. So if you had to give the prestige one Oscar, what would you give it? This is a wild card pick, but I think I would give it editing. That's fair. I think it's really well put together. It's paced really well. I thought it was a little like slow moving at the beginning, but then it really picks up. I love the ending. I love the structure. Yeah, I'm not really sure I would have given it cinematography. I did like the set design in the art direction, which is what it was nominated for. Mm -hmm. I was going to say Christian Bale. (laughs) He was very, he had a very subtle performance overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was much more Oscar performance. Yeah. Hugh Jackman, I don't know what it is about him. I have never really been attached to him as a performer. I'm not as captivated by him as I think a lot of people are. But I thought he was really good in this, too. Christian Bale almost wasn't in it, though. It was going to be Josh Hartnett. He really wanted it. Isn't that crazy? So That would have been... Yes. Rumor has it. So Josh Hartnett turned down Batman in Batman Begins. Which, why would you do that? That makes no sense. No sense at all. And then he wanted the part in The Prestige, but Christopher Nolan said no. He wanted Christian Bale, who... Well, that's his fault. You missed your chance, buddy. (laughs) So I think that we both did a good job in somehow picking a movie that the other was originally maybe cynical about, but ended up liking. So I am very happy about this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll definitely have to do this again. And it's kind of fun to see how they come together, too. Mm -hmm. two seemingly very different movies 
Right. Because when I picked the Age of Innocence for you, not knowing that you were going to pick the Prestige for me, I didn't see really any similarities between the two, but it turns out there are quite a few. So I think that if you want something that is maybe an off the beaten path Scorsese, if you like him, if you want to check out more of his filmography, if you want great performances with icons, Daniel Day-Lewis, Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder. If you want a period film that's a little bit different, definitely check out The Age of Innocence. If you want, I know he called it his most violent film, but it's way less overt and Mm -hmm. it's definitely an offshoot. So I, I recommend this one as well. And The Prestige, of course, too. If you like Nolan and somehow haven't seen this, run to it. If you like magic, if you like movie magic, if you like tons of twists being deceived all the time if you like david bowie david bowie's in it i forgot to mention that i remembered his character but i honestly didn't think that was him from labyrinth to the prestige (laughs) he does it all so highly recommend the prestige on your christopher nolan viewing so next week on oscar wilde we'll be talking about the riveting documentary boy state which will be coming out on Apple TV Plus in partnership with A24. I was so excited for this movie for so long, being their first collaboration, and I was not disappointed at all. And there's a lot to discuss. I cannot wait to discuss this with you. I was completely enthralled by this movie. I was angry. I was sad. I was thrilled. And... Mm-hmm. I think this could be, this is going to sound wild, but I think it could be the first documentary to be nominated for Best Picture. I think it has a case. Oh, it has a big case. I think the only follow-up to Parasite is Boy State winning mm-hmm. Best Picture. Oh my God. And that's such a wild take, and I'm going for it because I think it does everything Parasite does in a very Oscar-forward movie that maybe we really haven't seen to this caliber that can really appeal to the masses and not just the documentary category. So mm-hmm. already getting ahead of myself. Me too. <laughs> I'm like ready to keep talking about it. <laughs> but Boy State comes out on Apple TV Plus next Friday on August 14th. So you can tune in to our conversation before and after viewing and see if you agree. So we'll have that up next week. Yeah, I really am so excited to discuss that with you and for all of you guys to watch it. We've been talking about a lot of old movies. Last week, we did a retro episode. We pretended there were popular Oscars on the 2010s. So look forward to this next episode coming. We have a new 2020 release that is that good. So many other 2020 releases. We'll probably have to do another VOD episode because we've gotten The Rental, which was amazing. I still need to watch that. I'm scared to watch alone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you need to be, but it's great. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. Wear your masks, especially if you're going to a theater, unlike us. (laughs) Stay safe and we'll see you next week. Yeah, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Wear your mask.